Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. This is Religion Today with Martin Tanner, a weekly look at religion and spirituality here at home and around the world. Now, here's your host, Martin Tanner. Welcome. This is Religion Today. I'm your host, Martin Tanner. Today's subject is the Old Testament, some archaeology that gives credence to the idea that the Old Testament is a fairly accurate history of what occurred in ancient times. Now, we have this idea in the church that the Bible is true as long as it's translated correctly. But we also have this notion that much of the Bible has not been translated correctly and that somehow today we're in a position to really judge how accurately the Old Testament has been translated. I'm a little bit amused at this. If you were to do a little exercise, for instance, take three or four newspapers and read about the same events that just happened a day or two ago. They would read very, very differently, which one reads accurately, which one has accurate history. Take a different exercise. Look at some textbooks, the one that you used in high school 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. Take a look at a current high school textbook and then take a look at something by, say, Howard Zinn, who thinks the United States is the devil. Which one of those is accurate history? Well, I suppose it depends on your point of view. The point that I'm trying to make here is that every single person has a different take on history. And for us to somehow, thousands of years later, trash talk the Old Testament as being somehow inaccurate and wrong and that the ancients were just not recording things well, I find that a bit Presumptuous. So, with that short little background, let's talk about some archaeological discoveries that do shed light on the Bible and actually give credence to the idea of how accurate it is. Let's start off with the Rosetta Stone. In 1798, Napoleon, the famous Frenchman, invaded Egypt. He brought with him a science team of scholars draftsmen, a number of other people, and he hauled off a number of finds back to France. One of the most impressive of those was an ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic and demotic and Greek, all written on a large stone. I've seen the original Rosetta Stone. It's a very impressive thing. Prior to the Rosetta Stone, no one could read hieroglyphic Egyptian. With the Rosetta Stone, that became possible because Demotic Egyptian was written on it, and so was Greek, and so was hieroglyphic. And all three of those languages 
discuss the same event that enabled scholars to read for the first time hieroglyphics. And that also happened just before the time, a few decades before, Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham from ancient hieroglyphics. And contrary to popular opinion, the translation that Joseph Smith did has not been disproven by scholars of Egyptology. That is just not the case. But more about that a different day. The whole point of the Rosetta Stone is that it enabled people to read ancient documents and give them a heads up about whether or not some of the events in the Bible were accurate or not. And they were. Number two, the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in 1947 when two shepherd boys walked into a cave. They found the first of a number of caves that had over 900 scroll fragments in them. Some of those are secular scrolls and not all that important, but a number of them were religious scrolls. These were scrolls that were many, many centuries older than the then earliest known copies of books in the Old Testament. For example, the Isaiah scroll, which is part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, it is true that there are some differences in the Isaiah scroll, but they are not all that huge and all that incredible. For me, the Isaiah scroll and the other Dead Sea Scrolls that that have been found show that the Bible is pretty good history. There are certainly things that have changed in the transmission over the centuries, but by and large, the Old Testament is pretty good. Here's another one, the Tel Dan inscription. In 1993, excavators at Tel Dan uncovered an inscription with the wording on it that most scholars have convincingly argued says the House of David. Now, this dates to the 9th century BC, and this inscription was added to the fact that it was sealed under a layer of destruction that, that happened in about, oh, 733 to 722 BC, somewhere around there. So the point is that nobody else could have messed with this. Nobody else could have somehow tampered with it or put it in the wrong place. So we have this artifact that dates the House of David to about the 8th or 9th BC. Why? Because the House of David reference found at Tel Dan was underneath this layer of rubble that dates to 733 to 722, and the rubble directly under that dates to about the 9th and 8th centuries BC. That is remarkable. That shows that there really was a house of David and that the setting and general stories of the ancient parts of the Bible, the story of the Israelites and of King David and of King Solomon, have a real setting in real history. Another discovery that to me is just fascinating, and I really like this one, is the Ketif Hinnom scrolls, or amulets. They're very, very small. They were discovered in 1979. They date to the 7th century BC. These coupled 
with the scrolls that I was just mentioning that talk about the house of David are strong evidence that the ancient Israelites had the religion that the Bible says they had. These two little amulets, they're only three inches long, have the wording from Numbers chapter 6 that talks about God blessing you and loving you. It's just absolutely beautiful and spectacular. These would have been kept by someone who was alive more than, well, almost 3,000 years ago, over 2,500 years ago. That is an amazing thing. And they had the same or very, very close book of numbers to what we have now. Number five, the Moabite stone. In 1868, a missionary in Jerusalem found a stone tablet for sale. And it appeared to be very ancient. The sellers had broken the tablet into a number of pieces so they could make more money by selling them off in parts. But fortunately, there was a copy that was made of the whole thing before it was broken up into pieces. That happens to be in the Louvre today, which shows how important it was. On the tablet is a text written in Moabite that dates to the 9th century B.C. And... It says, and this to me is fascinating, I am Misha, son of Chemish, king of Moab. Now, this confirms a couple of different things. First of all, that there was a king Moab, just like we have mentioned in the Bible. We also have a king Ahab that's mentioned in there, like we find in 2 Kings chapter 3. For Latter-day Saints... This also means that the name Chemish, which we find in the Book of Mormon in Omni chapter 1, verse 9, is an actual, ancient, authentic name, because here we have it found in this ancient Moabite stone that was discovered in 1968. All right, when we come back, more ancient discoveries that pertain to to the Bible. Stay tuned. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. Religion Today with Martin Tanner continues on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. We're back. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. If you have a question or comment about today's program, or if you'd like more information about just some kind of religious question that you might have, feel free to send me an email, martinstanner at gmail.com. martinstanner at gmail.com is where you would send it, and I will be happy to respond. The next great find that I'd like to mention here real quickly is the Lackish letters, or Lakish letters, depending on how you like to pronounce it. In the 1930s, there were some excavations made in the ancient site of Lachish. They were made by an excavator, an archaeologist by the name of J.L. Starkey, and he discovered a layer of debris that had been heavily destroyed and burned with fire at the hands of the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. These dated to 589, 588 BC, something along those lines. Now, what's the significance of that? 
Well, a number of those are very dateable because they have internal datings in it, in them. That shows that the timing of the description of the destruction under the hands of the Babylonians of the ancient uh, Jews is dateable. And that the beginning parts of the Book of Mormon, where it talks about Jerusalem being overthrown after Lehi and his family left, are something that can be dated from another source. That is a fascinating discovery. Another one, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Some of you may have heard of this before. In 1872, George Smith, who was also an archaeologist, discovered an Assyrian account of a flood among tablets stored in the British Museum that were obtained from excavations of mid-7th century B.C. Nineveh. That is fascinating. Ancient Nineveh had these stone tablets that talked about a flood. And they were not identical, but very similar to the description that we find in the ancient Bible about the flood epic and and Noah. It's reminiscent of Noah that we find in Genesis chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. It's a different hero. He has a different name. But many of the descriptions that you find in there, building a boat to save his life and save his family and save others from this large flood are very, very similar and show that in more than just one location, you had this great flood description. Here's another great discovery that I find fascinating. The most dependable water source for the city of Jerusalem during the Israelite early settlements is a spring called the Gihon Spring. But its location was outside the city walls. And that was a problem. Because if you were an ancient Israelite, well, how would that work if somebody laid siege to your city? So in 1867, there was an explorer named Charles Warren, and he discovered a vertical shaft that was cut through bedrock, allowing the people of Jerusalem to reach the waters of this Gihon Spring from behind the city walls. Now that gives us insight into how David's soldiers could capture this city originally as is described in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. There is another tie-in here, because that same tunnel also has a connection to the Siloam Pool, which is, of course, where Jesus healed. And so we have two locations from this Hezekiah's tunnel that was discovered that tie in to the Old Testament. One for Latter-day Saints that's a fascinating discovery is the seal of Mulek. If you go to Messiah chapter 25, verse 2, you read this, quote, Now there were not so many of the children of Nephi as there were of the people of Zarahemla, who was a descendant of Mulek, close quote. So here's this reference to a guy named Mulek. 
Well, who was he? We don't know that much about him. But the question is, is the Book of Mormon real? Is the Book of Mormon not real? If it's real, can we find this person, Mulek, in there? Because certainly Joseph Smith would have had no idea of a Mulek from real history at the time he was alive. Archaeologists excavating in Jerusalem discovered a small stamp seal. It was a clay emblem that would have been used to mark documents. And it, it of course, had a signature on it. This was found in the 1980s. And it was owned by or was the seal of Mulek, who was the son of a king. Dates to the 7th century to possibly the 6th century BC based on its size, shape, and use. It's a bluish-green malcite stone. It's fascinating because it ties not only into the Book of Mormon, but also into Jeremiah 38, where we hear about Jeremiah being cast into a dungeon and about Malachi, the son of Hamelech. We read in the King James Version of Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 6, about this specific thing. So we seem to have a reference here that ties into both Jeremiah 38, verse 6, and also Mosiah chapter 25, verse 2. This is a pretty cool discovery. One of the most fascinating for me is the excavation of the foot or the foot bone, rather, of a man who was crucified in the first century AD. So this would have been about the time that Jesus was crucified. We know that crucifixion took place. We also have depictions of Jesus' crucifixion. And frankly, based on this specific archaeological discovery, the depictions may be a little bit off. Why? Well, according to archaeologists, and I've, I've seen the photographs of, of this find, the nails would have been driven through the sides of the person's foot and then into the large beam. So rather than being through the tops of the feet, the spikes would have been through the sides of the feet. Now, maybe there are different ways that that was done, but it's a fascinating discovery nonetheless. And it shows certainly the crucifixion took place, which we already knew. And it gives us graphic representation that crucifixion actually happened. Another fascinating discovery is the diorite stele. It's a stele that depicts God as a man, God as a person. This is a stele that has God sitting in a chair, and he is giving his law, God's law, to Hammurabi. And in this seven-foot-high black steely, you have this fascinating depiction of God sitting in the chair, of Hammurabi standing there, of God reaching out with this code. 
and it's on exhibit in the Louvre in Paris. I first read about this in a book by James Pritchard, who has written a number of different things about the Bible. It's absolutely fascinating. Many of the ancients saw God or depicted God as a divine man. Well, there are a number of others that I could get to, but we are out of time. If you have questions or comments, be in touch. I'm Martin Tanner. This is Religion Today. Join me next week. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.